While we were marching through Georgia, everybody swing your honey, swing your high and low. The Alaman left for the old left hand, around the ring you go. A grand old right to left walk on your heel and toe. Promenade that pretty gal to Georgia. In 1844, a lecturer arrived at the University of Georgia planning to expound on the benefits of temperance and the evils of alcohol. His lecture was interrupted by a gang of rioters using sticks and rocks to end the assembly. In fact, there are several stories of students expressing their dislike of a lecturer by throwing stones. Of course, drinking and gambling was and is nothing new to the college experience, and why not indulge a little bit when weighed down with studies in logarithms, conic sections, differential calculus, plenty of classical literature, and moral philosophy? Eventually, there also came football. So, as everyone gets ready for the championship game, this is a moving through Georgia extra. Notes on the University of Georgia. An ordinance passed in 1787 states, Religion, morality, and knowledge being necessary to good government and the happiness of mankind, schools and the means of education shall forever be encouraged. Shortly after that declaration, a tract of 40,000 acres was given to the governor as an endowment and the University of Georgia was chartered. The actual site for the college wasn't chosen until 1801. Some educational institutes were open as branches of the university, such as the Agricultural College in Dahlonega in 1872, the School of Technology in Atlanta in 1885, and industrial colleges in Milledgeville and Savannah. The school celebrated its first commencement ceremony in 1804. At first, students lived anywhere they could find accommodations. Eventually, they were required to room on campus, probably so the faculty could keep an eye on them and keep their morals intact. An act of the state legislature finally permitted them to board at any place within the town or vicinity of Athens, provided they board with moral, respectable families of which the president of the college shall judge. Students were permitted to take walks up to one mile on Sundays, provided the walker complied with the school's laws in the process. One of my favorite previous episodes was The Life of Robert Toombs, and at the beginning I told the story of the Toombs Oak. In the story, Toombs had been expelled from UGA, but returned on the day the commencement ceremony was being held in the chapel. He took a place under an oak in the courtyard and began to speak, eventually drawing the audience from the ceremony out to the yard to hear him. A book titled A Historical Sketch of the University of Georgia tells that tale and ends with There is not the semblance of truth in this story. Robert Toombs, who would write the Articles of Secession for Georgia and become the Confederacy's first Secretary of State, was not exactly expelled from the university, but put on probation after a conflict with another student. 
Here's the story as it's told in the book. R. Toombs called J.H. a shameful name, which he acknowledged to the faculty, and the said H. attacked him and beat him on Friday night. Toombs went to H.'s room with a bowie knife and pistol, threw the knife and pointed the pistol, which another student wrested from him. Afterwards, Toom attacked J.H. with a knife and hatchet, but students interfered, preventing injury. Saturday morning, Toombs waylaid H. on their return to college, attacking J.H. with a club and pistol. Toombs was given a trial among the professors and put on probation. The next year, he would voluntarily leave the school. I have an article here called Student Life at the University of Georgia in the 1840s by Lester Hargret. It was published in 1924, so these weren't his experiences. He was gathering information on a biography of Henry Timrod. Not sure who Henry Timrod was? Well, he'll come up in another episode. In the 1840s, Alonzo Church was president of the college. He actually served from 1829 until 1859. Church Street is named after him. He was something of a divisive figure and a terror to disorderly students. And the students were disorderly. One group of students broke into the home of a particularly strict professor, took his belongings outside, and burned them. In fact, one record shows that from 1832 to 1842, 54 students were expelled. Nine for idleness and neglect. Ten for drunkenness. Seven for disorderly conduct. Nine for fighting. Four for stabbing and shooting. Seriously, four expelled for stabbing and shooting. Ten for disrespect to professors. 3 for indecency, 1 for refusing to recite, and 1 for disturbing church. These are the guys that got expelled. These are the ones that got expelled. Remember, the guy that attacked another guy with a hatchet and tried to shoot him twice got probation, but these guys got kicked out. Besides drinking and throwing stones at teachers, a UGA student may have chosen to be involved with a literary society. Often, however, these debates were just used to justify the existing Southern society and would play a part in organizing the student resistance to things like integration or the admittance of women to the college. From the start, there was some animosity between two prominent societies, and we're talking about the Demosthenian and Phi Kappa. Students would listen to lectures and debates with titles such as That the Heathens are in a salvable state, or That danger is to be appropriate from popery, or maybe That the discovery of the magnet had been more beneficial to the world than the invention of the press. For example, in 1844, the Demosthenian Society voted 13 to 3 that there was a god. 
women were permitted to earn college credits by attending classes between summer school sessions beginning about 1906 and were formally admitted to the graduate school starting in 1916. Some women contracted with professors to receive private instruction for credit and slowly women began receiving UGA degrees. Something unusual happened when World War I broke out. Recruits in the South began appearing for basic training with signs of malnutrition. It was obvious that those in Georgia with the traditional role of preparing meals, and that's the women, needed some instruction in preparing a proper diet. Also, the men were headed to war and some roles, such as teachers, needed to be filled. In 1918, women became eligible to study for a degree in home economics as part of the College of Agriculture. Women would register in the dean's office. They wouldn't wait online. The board didn't want the men's students to react to the sight of women preparing for a college education. After the war, different programs began to open up and women started to become officially college students, but it would be a while before they were accepted. In 1942, as the country was going to war again, UGA instituted a naval pre-flight program. 2,500 officer cadets at a time came to the campus for three months of training. The Navy took over 18 buildings, built three dorms, and a lot of athletic buildings and fields. This was all to prepare students to be combat aviators. The Skycrackers. The Navy pre-flight football team was ranked number one among service teams while the Bulldogs went on in 1942 to be national champions. What a shame that a few bad apples have to spoil a good time for everyone by breaking the rules. Starting in 1911, the freshmen began the tradition of wearing red or red and black caps with an F. Freshmen sat in their own section for football games, they were not permitted to walk under the arch, and they wore the caps until the Christmas holidays. A freshman, when they called them rats, that didn't follow the rules could end up in rat court. Those found guilty could be sentenced to cleaning toilets or a paddling. Thank you, sir. May I have another? A freshman might sometimes be caught by upperclassmen who didn't feel like sending them to court. They would just shave their head. In 1933, the school stocked up on caps for women students to wear. Needless to say, most freshmen hated the caps. The upperclassmen defended the cap rule simply because they had undergone it themselves and they would not be denied their turn as enforcers. The tradition began to peter out in the 50s as styles were changed and too many freshmen to punish effectively just stopped wearing them. The cap tradition began to revive as a symbol against desegregation. The new design was similar to a Confederate soldier's cap, but desegregation spread around the state and interest in even the new caps just waned. A newspaper column in 1958 lamented that practically no freshman caps were to be seen on campus, even at football games. You can't do that to our pledges. Only we can do that to our pledges. By the 60s, they were only worn during orientation week. This is just my opinion, but I think the war had something to do with that. 
a soldier returning from Europe or the Pacific could hardly be asked to wear a rat cap during their first year attending college on the GI Bill. As far as football goes, I've already told the best UGA football story I have. It's in an episode called The Near Death of Football in Georgia. We also touch on the desegregation of Georgia's colleges in an episode called The Sugar Bowl of 1956. So if you missed anything, please rewind and listen to it again. I guarantee that these facts will make you the most interesting person at your championship football watching party. Or maybe just tell a few friends about the podcast. <laughs>